You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. There's an old axiom that I'm sure you're all familiar with that says imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Basically meaning that we copy or mimic or imitate someone because we admire them or we uh, like what they do, we value what they do, we think they're important or we like the way they do whatever it is that they're doing. When we were kids, when I was a kid, it probably was the same as you when you were a kid, we uh, did a lot of imitation, right? We imitated all kinds of people and all kinds of things. People we might have wanted to have a career or uh, wanted to do something or maybe it was in sports. A lot of times we would imitate those who were popular in popular culture, uh, particularly probably uh, for me it was the sports world. But I had a lot of people that I would imitate. Donnie and Marie. Some of y'all don't know who they are, but my sister and I growing up would imitate Donnie and Marie. We were brother and sister, and so we would sing to our records and imitate them, that we were going to be like them. Uh, I would imitate uh, wrestlers because I I liked wrestling, the the real kind, Uh, you know, like with the Four Horsemen and and Ric Flair and all that. So uh, I would imitate them. I had a few friends, and there was four of us, and we called ourselves the Four Horsemen after the Four Horsemen in wrestling, uh, that not the the four horsemen of the apocalypse, but the four horsemen in wrestling. When I was playing baseball early on, I imitated Joe Morgan. And some of y'all really don't know him. I'm dating myself. This is like when I was younger in the 70s and he played for the Cincinnati Reds. And every time he'd get up to bat, he'd hold his elbow out and he'd do like this just to remind himself, I guess, of where he wanted his elbow in his batting stance. So I would come up to bat and I'd do that chicken wing too, just like him. I wanted to wear number six because that was the number that Dr. J wore when I played basketball. And then when I got into college, I wanted to be like Beverly Hills 90210. So I had the really long sideburns all the way down to here, you know. All of us had those things that we copied and did. But what happens when our childish imitations that for the most part could be harmless turn into adult imitations that are destructive? We've seen extreme cases of people in life copying things that are very bad, like maybe a deranged individual does something horrific and says they modeled that after someone else that had done something like that, like a copycat killer or something like that. That's the extreme portion. What I was mentioning before is kind of what we would call the harmless portion, but here's what I want you to see, something interesting about our enemy, the devil. I have found that Satan loves for us to live in the middle of harmless and extreme. He loves for us to live in that place, what I mean as the master deceiver, where we believe all that we do is either harmless or extreme. Because let's just say that it isn't harmless. It's morally problematic. And a lot of times we've done things in our lives that maybe are morally problematic. But here's what we'll do even with that. When we can't say that it's harmless anymore, then we'll say, well, at least it's not like that. Therefore, we live in this in-between world. That's, we'd say, well, that's just youthful exuberance. That's just, that's harmless. That's no big deal. We were just messing around. Or, well, at least I'm not a serial killer. 
And as long as we're caught in the comfortably numb middle of harmless and extreme, we will proceed through life in such a way that the father of lies loves. Speaking of fathers, the most obvious imitations are some that we're not even aware that we're doing, right? That we just have kind of picked up. Have you ever had somebody tell you that, well, you did that, you look just like your mom, or you did that, you look just like your dad, People would say that about me. They'd say, well, you did that, you look just like Josiah, or you look just like Caleb, and I've said this to you all before. No, I did it first, so they look just like me when they do it, not the other way around. But here's the reality. Why is it so normative that we pick up the things of our parents? And here's why. Because we have seen and been immersed in the closest of proximities to our parents most of our formative years. So we just pick up certain behaviors and actions and responses for good or for bad. We start to imitate what or who we spend the most time with and we're in closest proximity to. Spiritually speaking, there are two fathers. That's what I want to preach about today. The title of this morning's message is Two Fathers and a Criminal. Two Fathers and a Criminal. So this is the tale, really, of two fathers. There's the bad father, the father of lies, and there is the good father, our heavenly father, the one who created us. So the question for us is, which one will we imitate? Which one will we be in the most close proximity to? Which one will we spend the most time with? And I think all of us would say, well, I'm not gonna copy the devil. I wanna imitate my heavenly father. I wanna be like Jesus, me too. I wanna be like him. And the apostle Paul in Ephesians says that a good place to start in doing this is to choose to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you received when Jesus called you out of the grave, out of that dead life, and he gave you a new life. Called you out of the tomb of your dead life, gave you a new life in Christ. So this is how you're supposed to live if you want to imitate that father. Last week we looked at Ephesians 4. We're in a series in Ephesians. We're going to be here a little bit longer. There's a lot more in this passage or in these six chapters of Ephesians. We talked about how putting the dirty clothes of our old lives back on last week is like being washed clean and then walking to your laundry hamper and putting on old, old dirty clothes. I had a lot of questions last week. Were those clothes really dirty? Of course they were. Why would I bring clean clothes? I mean, that was, that was my dirty clothes basket in my closet. I was going to take a bunch of clean clothes, put them in the basket, and pretend. That's a lot of extra work. So I just brought the dirty clothes. Well, you sure were smelling them. It's fine. It's my stink. We all don't smell our own stink. Until it's too bad, and then it's really bad, because if you're smelling it, everybody else would have been long smelling it, right? So here's the truth of what that means is that Christ has given us a new life to put on a, a new clothes, the robes of righteousness. I also talked about how our old sinful lives and habits are like well-worn paths that are beat down because that we travel on them too often. So beat down, so well-worn that we can make our way through them in the dark, which is actually what we're doing, walking down the darkness of that path. But we've been down there so many times, we know exactly where to go without bumping into too many things. Because of our habitual usage, because of the weight of our trust in our own selves and not God, we've worn out those paths. But the better way, the righteous way, is to take the path that God has for us, that he leads us down and illuminates with his word. The Bible tells us that the word of God, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So we need his word to be the lamp and the light. 
So we're going to continue in Ephesians 4 today. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to chapter 4 of Ephesians. And we're going to be at verses 25 through 32, finishing up this chapter in Ephesians today. Paul starts, as we would say, to meddling. You may have heard that. Now, you, now you're meddling. I was good with you just talking about our old lives and our new lives, but now you're talking about specifics. And it kind of hits me right where I don't really want to deal with that. He's going to get real practical, and we need this. We need this practicality. We need somebody to get into the, the nuts and bolts of our life. Like I said, or we just keep living in the in-between. In-between the, well, that's not that big of a deal, and well, it's not that bad. So if you're having the Bible, let's turn there and read this now, Ephesians 4. And what we're going to see is Paul give us some concrete examples of what it looks like when we imitate Satan, that one father, and then the corresponding behavior of what it looks like when we imitate the good father, God. Let's read. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So Paul gives us some very practical ways to behave. Remember, Ephesians is about doctrine and then also our responsibility to live according to what we believe. It's doctrine and duty. That's what we see in Ephesians. The first three chapters, doctrine. Here's what we believe. Here's why we believe this. And then the next three chapters, four, five, and six, as a result of what you believe, the doctrine, here's what you do. Here's how you behave. This is how we live our lives. So these passages that we're looking at right now are all behaviors that we're supposed to live, that we're supposed to be, but they have some things in common. There's like three things, all of these behaviors that Paul gives in these chapters or these first few verses that they have in common. First thing to notice is how all of these actions that Paul just gave us that we just read involves what? Other people. They deal with relationships. Because Ephesians is all about what? Remember, we've been saying this. It's all about protecting the unity of the Spirit. It's all about protecting the relationships in the body of Christ. And in this case, walking in purity does not mean that you do so in isolation. Walking in purity means you do so in relationship. Holiness is not some mystical state that you acquire while you're just alone off with God on the mountain. Holiness is a life of Christ-likeness that you prove down here in the valley in the relationships God's given you, even in the church. Actually, most importantly, in the church with real people. Holiness is hewn and honed in the crucibles of relational conflict. Yeah, there's a lot of good things about relationships, 
But as we go through our membership process, which we've had the pleasure of doing this week, myself, Robert, Carla, and Keevan, one or two of us will meet with the different new members who are now becoming members. And just going through this, we talk about being anchored to Christ and in the church, that God placed us here. And so that we're not going to bolt or run at the first sign of conflict or difficulty. No, that we're going to be hewn and honed and made holy. And that happens primarily through the crucibles of relational conflict within the body of Christ. So what happens is either we're going to grow to be more like Jesus in those conflicts while protecting the unity of the church in those conflicts or we're gonna be destroyers of human harmony while only being concerned with ourselves. It's interesting that when we're most concerned about ourselves, we talk about how concerned we are about other people. I mean, I've been there, right? It's like, well, all I care about is you. Well, all I care about is this. Well, listen, all I'm here for is for you. Really, because it feels like all you're here for is for you. So we have to work out this conflict if you will or really just any part of our relationship not even conflict and God makes us holy secondly here's what we see another commonality and all these behaviors you could just kind of keep looking back up there to Galatians or Ephesians 4 25 you'll see this over and over again Paul gives us what not to do by identifying the sin he's like don't lie or a falsehood then he'll give us a corresponding action that is befitting a Christ follower like I love that right don't just tell me what not to do well then what am I supposed to do don't, get, don't just get rid of a habit that's bad or a lifestyle that's sinful. Replace it with a God-honoring one. It's not just what not to wear, but what do I put on that's going to actually make me look better? Jazz, my daughter-in-law, said last week that she wanted to be my personal stylist. So at some point, if I, you don't like what I wear, then just blame her. Right? Don't blame me. Thirdly, Paul gives a good theological reason for why we are commanded to live this way. Because this is important. Jesus and now Paul, it's important to both of them, it should be important to us, that doctrine and ethics go hand in hand. Think about the Beatitudes. Think about what Paul's saying now. Doctrine and ethics go hand in hand. It is both belief and behavior. The message to us today is, don't just tell me what you believe, show me what you believe, and how you treat other people, particularly and practically, people in the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters. The why is important, so Paul tells us why each of these things. Why not to lie? Why Why not to steal? Why not to get angry? Why has it beneficial? There's also one other major theme that I think is running through all these admonitions and exhortations. See if you see it as well. It's the repetitive nature of the devil. Like he's not original. All of these sins are the same old tactics that the devil has used since Adam and Eve. It started in in the garden. It started in Genesis. It started with Adam and Eve, then Cain and Abel, all of these same things. And then they correspond to looking just like the bad father when we copy or imitate these behaviors. Satan is not creative. God is a creator. John 10.10 describes Satan as a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. John 8.44 calls Satan a murderer and a liar. So what does the bad father look like? So here's Satan's character, his tactics, and it's the same ones again and again and again. He is a liar, he's a murderer, and he's a thief. These sins that we have that look like that copy our human dad, if you will. And they manifest in our lying, they manifest in our anger, and they manifest in our own stealing. That's what we're gonna get into a little bit more. 
And here's how God has been trying to redeem and help us since he first gave us even the Ten Commandments, if you will, when he said, don't bear false witness, don't lie, don't murder, and don't steal. It's just the same stuff over and over and over again. And yet we still fall for it over and over and over again. And here, here's, here's our first thing. Well, I'm, I'm not angry. I ain't killed anybody. I'm not stealing. I'm not lying. Somehow we put ourselves right there, back in the middle, right? It's harmless and extreme. And here I am comfortably numb, imitating my earthly father, if you will. Now, Paul is warning and exhorting about the same exact things. So let's look at these, make sure we're not lulling ourselves to death in the in-between. First, he says, stop telling lies. Stop bearing falsehood, right? Stop doing the false stuff. And we oftentimes just want to stop there. That's how, like, a lot of us are. It's like we want to fix it. Just stop. Just stop doing it. And if that was that easy, then we, would all, we all would. Stop telling lies. And then he gives the corresponding Christ-like behavior. That's here's the, what I said a moment ago. And he says, tell the truth. Don't just avoid not telling lies, but speak the truth in love. Whenever we speak the truth, the Spirit of God is at work. But whenever we lie, Satan goes to work. I told y'all, Paul, he, he's going to meddle into your life. He's going to get right in the middle of where everything hits because there's not one of us in here who hasn't lied before. We can't ignore this. We haven't, there's not one of us in here who hasn't withheld information. We didn't tell the truth. Maybe we didn't tell a lie, but we didn't tell the truth either. Or we've looked at the faces of people made in the image of God, our brothers and sisters of Christ, and we just lied straight to them. But then he gives the corresponding proper behavior. Speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we all are members of one body. Paul is saying we're one body in Christ. So to speak lies is like stabbing the body of Christ in the heart. To not be truthful about what you're feeling and what you're going through and deceiving someone, you might as well be punching yourself in the face when you lie to another believer in the body of Christ because it destroys Christian fellowship. Christian fellowship, which is what we're supposed to have, is built on trust, as is any good relationship. And trust is built on truth. Pretty simple. Lies destroy fellowship while truth strengthens it. So let's be people who tell the truth, church. Let's be those who don't lie. We, we quit being evasive and deceptive and duplicitous and withholding and sneaky. And instead, in every meeting, in every conversation, in every connect group, in every sidebar, we are straightforward, plain, open, honest, accurate, truthful. Who is Satan? He's the father of lies. Who is God? He's the father of all truth. Who is Jesus? He is the truth. Which father do you imitate? Next, Paul, verse 26. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. This is something we often misunderstand and misuse. In and of itself, anger is not a sin. <gasps> what? I mean, the holy anger of God is mentioned numerous times in his judgment against sin. We saw Jesus himself get angry at those who were turning the temple into a place of marginalizing and disenfranchising people made in the image of God. To which you might say, well, I'm not God and I'm not Jesus. And I'd say that's an astute observation with helpful implications for us today. 
When it comes to anger, that's good to know that. But here's what I think. I think this verse implies there is such a thing as Christian anger. Here's what I mean. There has to be something in response to the evil in this world other than apathy. But for whatever reason, we don't feel or we've been taught or we're not sure how to express it when it comes to evil in this world. And I think that's bad theology. I think it's bad theology that's kept some of us in bondage to our own sin. And I think it's bad theology that's allowed the world around us to be okay with the sin that's going on around us all the time. In a fallen world, we're going to come face to face with blatant evil all the time. Literally all the time. And when that happens, we should have some sort of visceral response. Like we should be angry about evil and sin, not apathetic. If God hates sin as his children, we should hate it too. In our own lives first. And then if something is wicked or evil and hurting other people, it should arouse something in us that is angry at sin and evil and death while still loving towards people made in the image of God. Yes. But here's the big caveat. So that we don't get out there and act, okay, well, I'm going to go get angry. Because we're not God, Scripture says we should be slow to anger. James says that we should be slow to anger. Psalm says that God himself is slow to anger. So guess what? If we're going to imitate our Father God, then we're just going to be slow to anger. Therefore, Paul gives us also guardrails for our holy indignation. First and foremost, he says, okay, be angry, but then don't sin. We got to make sure our anger is free from spite, malice, animosity, and wanting to get revenge. That's the kind of anger that James says will not produce the righteousness of God. That's not going to work. That's not okay. Pastor Brent didn't say you could go do that. Next, Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Now, this has got to be probably one of the most, uh, again, misused thoughts and scriptures that I know of because it's not a literal nighttime, daytime thing. If that was the case, then I'd only get angry in the summertime when I had more time to stay angry. <laughs> or I'd move to Russia where there's white nights and I could have, be angry for 23 plus hours. I actually was in Russia one time in college during a white night. It was the most bizarre thing I've ever been a part of. It was like the sun went down and then it came right back up. It was, I was like, what? okay, well, this is where I'm going to come if I'm going to be angry. I got 23 hours to get my revenge. He's not saying that. He's saying, don't let your anger turn into darkness in your heart. Turn into resentment and bitterness. Don't let it fester there where it spreads and defiles you and other people in the body of Christ. Ask God to help you to forgive, truly forgive, so that the sun doesn't go down on your anger. Then Paul goes on to tell us why. Says, if not, we'll give the devil a foothold. Again, another part of scripture, like don't give the devil a foothold. Now, I know there's all kinds of ways we give the devil a foothold, but oftentimes we use it. But here's where Paul's using it don't give the devil a foothold when it comes to anger. That's what he's saying. When it comes to anger, there's this tension, and it's an obvious one, one that we've all battled with. That's why we don't do this well. This tension between a righteous type of anger and an unrighteous type of anger. And if not held biblically, this good tension is going to break and our anger will explode. That's why the devil is doing what he's trying to do, to get us to be angry. He loves to lurk around angry people so he can exploit them into rage or violence and destroy fellowship. Jesus told us anger is the first step toward murder, actually. And Satan is what? A murderer. So he's a liar, 
and he's a murderer. So lying and anger give the devil a foothold to where he does much damage in the body of Christ. Satan's doing a lot of damage in our family. I'm talking about the family of God worldwide, the body of Christ. And, and, and it has an earthly name in our legal system. When we turn on each other, our family members with lies and anger and hurt someone or murder someone in our earthly laws is called a crime of passion. This is where a family member would commit murder against another family member. Anger becomes a moment of insanity where we go into a fit of rage and do things that are inexplicable. Contrary to popular belief, we can't just explode and have no collateral damage. I've heard people say, well, I just got to blow off steam and then I'll be fine. You don't explode and blow off steam without having collateral damage, particularly in the body of Christ. And currently I see a lot of anger in our world and I see a lot of anger in the body of Christ. And we have to remember what James did say, that human anger does not produce the righteousness of God. That's human anger. I see a lot of human anger. I don't see a lot of godly anger. Sin number three, Paul says, anybody who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Now again, here's our first thought. Maybe you think, well, I don't steal. But the application is far wider than you want to imagine. We all probably remember the first time we stole something, right? Maybe it wasn't grand larceny right off the bat for you, but maybe it was like me and you stole a piece of gum from the pharmacy in the drugstore. I don't know why it is. I think I've talked to a lot of people. It's like, that's the first thing I stole was a thing, stick of gum. I'm like, because we're kids. Like, well, what are we going to go for? We don't know anything about money at that point. We steal gum. And I remember my mom's like, I'm sitting there unwrapping that thing on the way out and putting it in my mouth. And then she's like, uh, where'd you get that? And then it was all, you know, it was over at that point. I was, had to go back in. I was crying, you know, gave it back to the pharmacist. That was the end of my, you know, kleptomania for the rest of my life. So, <laughs> But why, why do we remember our first theft? Because I bet I could ask all of you the first time you remember stealing something. It's like really little and probably all of us remember. Why do we remember that? I think it's because it's one of the first times in our life we recognize the difference between the two fathers in our life and how they affect our soul. But stealing isn't just shoplifting or robbing a bank. Because that's what we think. Don't steal. I check. I don't do that. It's evading your taxes. April 15th's coming up. Yeah, but the government already takes off. I'm sorry. Render under Caesar what is Caesar's. It's not giving somebody a fair wage as an employer. It's not working or doing shoddy work and stealing hours from the person that employs you. It's throwing your trash in a neighbor's trash can without asking them to avoid paying for garbage pickup. How about splitting the cable 64 ways while you were in college? Now, that's old school, I know. But man, when I was in college, you have like a splitter on top of a splitter on top of a splitter. I mean, it had, by the time it got to whoever the last person was, you're just watching through snow. But at least I got free cable. Some of y'all still splitting off that neighbor. Xfinity don't know. Yeah, I'm telling you, Paul's getting in there. How about not giving back to God what is his in your financial giving? Satan's a thief. He steals. So as a father, he passes down his skill set to his progeny. Are we going to be the same ones that steal? 
But watch what the scripture says next about stealing. Because there's a progression from the inferior to the superior way of life. First, you can steal in order to have. Second, you can work in order to have. And third, you can work in order to give. The first two ways of life describe an illegal and a legal way of satisfying this drive of covetousness and greed. You can be driven by greed to steal and you can be driven by greed to work. One is illegal, the other is legal, but both are sinful. So Paul says there's a greater way. The way that is more like our father is to generously give. God has ordained work, not stealing, as the way of getting what we need. Work is not a curse. Sometimes people talk about, oh, work is a curse. No, work is not a curse. Adam was put in the garden to work it. The fall brought boredom, frustration, and futility in the work. That's the curse. But work itself is a gift of God. How could it be otherwise since God is the greatest worker of all and created us in his image? Christ is a worker of miracles. How does he do these things if we're not supposed to follow in his footsteps? Our motivation is the issue here. Why do we work? Working in order to have is perhaps an American ideal. If you earned it, you should have it. But it's not a Christian ideal. The most radical thing about this text is that we are commanded to do all our work. And here's the main reason why, Paul says, with a view to meeting the needs of others. You can live to have, either illegally or legally, you can live to have, or you can imitate your heavenly father and live to give. Wow. Imitate your father in heaven and live to give. If we steal, it hurts others, Paul's saying. Therefore, we should work so that we might be able to help others. And one qualifier, Paul is not writing to people who could not work because of a disability or some other reason. He's writing to those who would not work. We stop stealing because of greed and we start giving because of grace. And then the last of these commandments, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only that which is helpful for the building up of others according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's be honest, we could just have done a whole message on this passage alone. Our mouths spit out what is overflowing from our hearts. Our words reveal what is in our hearts. That's what Matthew says, right? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If there has ever truly been a change of heart, what Paul is saying is there should be a change of speech. The word unwholesome or corrupt in some translations is that which is worthless, bad, or rotten. It's like rotten fruit. The words don't have to be vulgar. They don't have to be curse words. They're just worthless when it comes to edifying or building up people around me. So many times we think, well, that's just unwholesome talk. No, unwholesome talk is the worthless words that come out of our mouths, regardless of vulgarity, that don't edify and build people up in the body of Christ. Proverbs 12, 18 is a great example. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. There's so much that can be said here, but I don't think we are naive or even uninformed as to what corrupt speech is. I think so many times we do know what's coming out of our mouths and how it affects other people in a detrimental way. We just need to allow the Holy Spirit to control our mouths and to control our lives. Now watch what Paul does this time. It's a little different than the others. Instead of saying, speak nice, kind words, he doesn't do that. He says he proposes a whole new way of thinking about speech. Instead of saying you don't need vulgar language to communicate your intention, he says the root issue is whether your intention is love. 
In other words, the issue for Paul is not really what is coming out of your mouth, it's why is it coming out of your mouth. The issue he's saying is love. It's not whether our mouth can avoid crass language. The issue is whether or not our mouth is a means of grace towards other people. You see, he shifts from the external fruit to an internal root. He shifts from what we say to why we say it. That's the issue. He doesn't say, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but instead let nice, clean talk come out of your mouth. He says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but ask this, is my mouth a means of grace? Am I meeting the need of those around me with the words that are coming out of my mouth? Am I edifying? Am I encouraging? Am I speaking life? Am I building up faith in the people that are around me who hear my words? Our words should minister grace and cause others to draw closer to Jesus. Do others draw closer to Jesus because of what comes out of your mouth? The father of lies encourages us in speech that tears people down and destroys the work of Christ in the church. That would certainly grieve the Holy Spirit. That's why it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit because unholy talk and disunity grieve the Holy Spirit. They're incompatible with purity and unity, which is what Paul's been teaching us to walk in, unity and purity. So unwholesome talk and disunity, those things are incompatible with the Holy Spirit and would grieve him. Then Paul closes with this rapid-fire list of six sinful actions. Get rid of all bitterness, get rid of all rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Let's just quickly highlight those before we close. Bitterness is a sour spirit. Sour speech. It's just like after you talk to somebody, you're just like, ugh. I mean, I don't know if that was terrible, but just, it's like sour milk. I could drink it, but it's probably going to make me sick, and it tastes awful. Bitterness refers to a settled hostility that poisons the whole inner self. That's the darkness, the sun going down. It's settled. It's a settled hostility. It's just in there like sour milk in your stomach. Bitterness leads to wrath, which is an explosion on the outside of what's going on on the inside. Wrath and anger, which we've already talked about, that are obviously similar, and they both lead to clamor. Clamor describes people getting so riled up that they're shouting each other. Been there? I know I have. While slander, which is the Greek word blasphemia, is speaking evil about people, especially behind their backs. It's speech so defaming that it attempts to or does destroy that person's reputation. And the next and final word is malice, which means wishing and even plotting evil against someone or a group of people. All of this, of course, would grieve the Holy Spirit. If you're a parent in here, listen, you know how much pain it causes you when your children fight with each other. If you've got more than one child, like I've said time and time again, if my kids wanted me to get angry, then they'd fight with each other. Well, it grieves the Holy Spirit when we fight with each other because he lives inside of us. It grieves the son because he died for us. And it grieves the father because he forgave us when he, we surrendered our lives to Jesus. So Paul closes with what should be evident in our lives. Instead of these sins, he says, be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. It comes down being able to forgive others when it comes to bitterness and all that it brings. Bitterness hardens the heart. But instead, we should be tenderhearted, he says, compassionate and kind. 
This is what I'm saying. Bitterness kind of messes all of this up. Bitterness in our hearts makes us treat others like Satan treats them, like an abusive father that he is. Instead, he's saying we should treat them the way God the Father has treated us in grace and forgiveness. That's the two fathers again. We must imitate our good heavenly father and forgive as we've been forgiven, which leads me to the criminal. Two fathers and a criminal. You see, when Jesus was crucified, there were two criminals crucified on either side of him. Both hanging on either side of him, all dying slow deaths. One criminal hardened his heart. The bitterness and the resentment and anger and all those things had settled. He chose to curse Jesus. In essence, he died bitter and full of malice. The other criminal chose repentance, seeking forgiveness in his final hours, and Jesus freely gave it to him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Two criminals, two hearts, one bitter and hard, one repentant and soft, representing two different decisions about which father we want to look like and who we're going to imitate today. Because we're the criminals today. Well, I'm not. No, I'm a, I'm a liar. I'm a murderer and I'm a thief. Apart from Christ, I'm all of those things. And even in Christ, sometimes I default back to looking like my old father. We can look like the lying, murdering, stealing father of lies, or we can put all of the bitterness away in Christ, die to that old life, and say yes to the father of lights and no to the father of lies. Being kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave us. Then we will be sons and daughters of God. And you think, well, you're kind of overstating this admonition. No, I'm not. Jesus said to John in 844, while speaking to some very moral and religious people, you belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar and the father of lies. I don't want to be like that, Father. And then I close with this sobering verse from 1 John 3.10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. This is how we know which father is our true father. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So Paul goes through all of that, right? He says, this is how you're supposed to treat each other. This is how you're not supposed to treat each other in the body of Christ, to walk in purity and unity, but this is how you're to treat each other. And all of us once being those criminals are now given the opportunity to be sons and daughters. We can harden our hearts and continue to copy the father of lies, or we can repent, soften our hearts, walk in the truth that Paul is leading us, that the word of God is leading us, and let him be our heavenly father, our good father. That's what I want us to be, church. That's what I want you and I to be. And yeah, I fall short. So do you. But Lord, help us to walk in your ways. That's got to be our prayer today. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from. And visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.